Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I'm Mario Sakura, and this is the place where my co-hosts, TJ Dahl and TJ Ingracia, and I discuss movies through the lens of the Enneagram model of personality. If you like the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and join the conversation on our social media pages. For now, grab some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're going to be talking about Enneagram Type 6 and uh, two movies that I really like. And I, I got to say, one of them I hadn't seen since it was in the theater, uh, you know, quite a long time ago. And um, I don't recall liking it as much as I did this time. Uh, but the two movies are Meet the Parents, which is I love from the beginning. I always thought that was a very, very funny movie. And the other one is Erin Brockovich with... Uh, uh, what's that young girl's name that uh, made a few movies way back? Uh, Julie something. Ju- yeah, there you go. Julia Roberts. Okay, great. Yeah, Eric's little sister. Yeah, okay. That's that's the one. So um, anyway, so uh, Meet the Parents and, and uh, Aaron Brockovich are our movies today. So TJ Dahl, had you seen both of these before? I had seen Aaron Brockovich when it was relatively new. I saw it in the rep cinemas around the time, like not in its first release, but when it was an Oscar contender and Julia Roberts won Best Actress for it. And loved it. Hadn't seen it since. Uh, Meet the Parents, never saw. And just to pick up on a conversation we had when we weren't recording um, a week ago, I realized why when I watched it is because I had a real bug up my ass about the director, Jay Roach, Ah. because I refused to forgive him for the travesty that is Austin Powers, which I saw in the theaters when it came out with my first serious girlfriend. And our opinions about it precipitated our breakup. Really? That's wow. a slight exaggeration. Wow. But not. And I can also see that there was some four bullshit going on in terms of the fact that she was part of a summer theater company that I wasn't in. And that movie was huge that summer. And everybody was quoting it. Everybody was quoting the catchphrases, which aren't funny in and of themselves. And it really felt like a big insider's club where everybody was in on it except me. Uh-huh. And I had loved Mike Myers on Saturday Night Live. And then suddenly everybody was into him. And I considered uh-huh. them all these Johnny Come Latelys. So, you fuck you mike myers <laughs> fuck you jay roach for making this horrendous film i don't want to have anything to do with you or anything you do wow wow so it took uh, this for me to see it and guess what great movie it's Hilarious. yeah good well i boy i don't know what to say about austin powers because i loved austin powers and i gotta say so i'll have uh, i'll share just the exact opposite experience tj because i saw it on opening weekend in a theater filled with people it was a saturday afternoon and i was probably the only person in the theater laughing in fact my wife nudged me a few times because i was embarrassing her by laughing so much at austin powers so i i just thought austin powers was hilarious well, um, you must have felt vindicated when it became a massive hit I, I I did. I was I I was an early adopter. So TJ and Grassi, do you have a do you have an opinion? Break the tie here. Do you have an opinion on Austin Powers? <laughs> I wasn't allowed to see Austin Powers when it came out. So well, with good I reason. I, I still don't yeah. know that I have ever actually seen I know I've seen clips really? on YouTube and I know a lot of the quotes and Doctor Evil and all that, but I don't know that I've ever actually seen any of the films all the way through. All right. Well, anyway, let's put that behind us and we'll move on to Enneagram Type 6 um, and uh, these two movies. All right. So Enneagram Type 6, um, I was, I've been looking forward to talking about Enneagram Type 6 and these two movies because 
again, I think it's a type that is often misunderstood, and particularly the uh, transmitting instinctual bias or of the six, right? The transmitting subtype, which other people, you know, will refer to as the uh, the counterphobic six, and that's the category I would put both of these characters into. Uh, so I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to being able to talk about the six and dispel some of the mythology or the myths about the six. Uh, so uh, type six is what we call striving to feel secure. Again, as the name would imply, these are people who are, you know, they want to be secure. And that means they're looking out for danger. They're often, they're vigilant people. They're scanning their environment. They're looking for threats so that they can mitigate against them. So uh, if there's something that's going to go wrong, I want to be prepared for it. And the irony is, is that even though this can make sixes seem kind of fearful, and they often are, they tend to do pretty well in a crisis because they've spent a lot of time preparing for it, right? So, you know, they're the people who are going to know where the first aid kit is, right? So when somebody gets wounded, you know, everybody else is going to be running around like chickens with their head cut off looking for the first aid kit. The six goes right to it, brings it over, you know, that sort of thing. So uh, it's a really interesting dichotomy in this. But again, the whole idea is... I want to be secure. Now, some people refer to the six as the loyalist or the loyal skeptic, you know, those sort of things. Honestly, I don't think that sixes are any more loyal than anybody else is. I, I, I think that very often, particularly with the preserving six, you will see security found within the immediate group, right? Like the family, the team, and so forth. It's not a big group, usually. The navigating six might be associated with a bigger group. But it's all about getting security, right? I'm loyal because you'll protect me. If I'm part of the tribe, I won't be ostracized. If I'm not ostracized, I won't be in danger. Now, they have a, a connection to points nine and three. At point nine, the strategy is striving to feel peaceful, and that's what we call the neglected strategy for sixes. They have a hard time relaxing. They have a hard time not worrying. They have a hard time you know, letting their guard down like a nine might. So this can be a challenge for them. At point three is what we call the support strategy, which is striving to feel outstanding. And so what we often see in sixes is this effort to point out how much value they bring, right? How much they have to offer to the rest of the group. Because if I bring in value, then again, I'll be accepted as part of the group and I'll be safe. Okay. Core qualities of point six, uh, excuse me, the core quality at point six is confidence. And this is kind of the key issue for the six is I don't know if I have what it takes to survive, right? So their confidence is stunted in their childhood and they're trying to recapture that sense of confidence. Now, when they're doing it in a fixated way, it's through this focus on uh, security, you know, identifying danger and so forth, but it can grow into just a natural, broader sense of confidence as they mature. Benevolence at point nine is also stunted. I don't know that I'm good enough. And the sense of value at point three, the three's core quality, is stunted as well. Do I have value? Do I bring something of worth to the group? These are big fears that the six has. Fear is the traditional vice of the six, right? It's this anxiety, not just of 
danger in the exterior, but danger of taking a position. Right? If I take one position, it's like I'm letting go of all the other options. Not in the way of a seven who, you know, if I have this for dessert, it means I can't have that for dessert. For the six, it's if I decide this or I believe this, what if I'm wrong? What bad thing's going to happen? So you often see them questioning themselves. They make a decision and then they change their mind and then they change it back and so forth. Um, the fixation of the six is cowardice. And this is interesting because I went looking in some of the more traditional books about this idea of cowardice and exactly what do they mean by that. And honestly, there weren't really good descriptions in either Naranjo or Sandra Maitre that I looked for. But when I looked up the word cowardice in the dictionary, it's one of the definitions is lack of courage or firmness of purpose which I found interesting. And going back to that thing I said about changing the mind, right? I'm not sure if this is the right thing to do. Now, what ends up happening is a fixated six can almost become a fanatic about things, right? They can become so devoted to a cause that, you know, they, they have this tremendous zeal. They can be a dog with a bone and not let go of something that once they commit to it. Um, but, they have to overcome this cowardice to get there. And in fact, sometimes that's an example of cowardice, right? I latch on to this thing so I don't have to question my views. I don't have to make, you know, ad hoc uh, assessments about gray zones. And finally, the virtue is courage. Okay, This is what the six aspires to. This is what, um, you know, is the antidote for fear, but also the high quality. And this is something we see in sixes as they become more healthy is a true confidence, courage, a willingness to go into the breach, if you will, and engage with things, even if it's kind of scary. Okay. So that's, those are the classic sort of uh, issues about the six. Guys, anything about the six that uh, you would add? A couple things come to mind. One is that a healthy six is often very playful. You'll find a six can be a good, fun friend who enjoys teasing, and that's a form of shoring up a relationship and bonding. Uh, another thing is I've heard it said that sixes are the most numerous Enneagram type there is out there. I can't imagine how anyone would determine that. And what I have experienced is that sixes are abundantly represented in people who attend Enneagram workshops. And I believe that that's because a fundamental part of the six psyche is this belief that I don't have the answer, but somebody out there does. And if I find the right source with the right wisdom, and if I ask the right questions, then I'll know what to do and then I'll be okay. So you find a lot of sixes wanting to know the answer and, and then wanting to ask a lot of questions because I want to get to the root of it. And the ultimate journey of a six is learning to trust myself that the light that I've been searching for is actually inside me this whole time. Yeah. I'm glad you qualified that alleged uh, statistic, TJ, because I've seen that a number of times too. And number one, there's just no way to know, right? I mean, I, you know, uh, you would have to have somebody reliable assess every person on the planet or at least a substantial enough representation. Um, number two, uh, it's just not my anecdotal experience, right? Uh, there seem to be as many sixes as any others. But in the Enneagram world, as in many worlds, there can be a sampling bias like you're talking about, right? Certain things attract certain types. So I would agree with that. One more thing is I have also found, and this is just my experience, so my limited reach, 
is that it's not unusual for a six to take a long time to settle on the fact that they're a six. Because again, part of the six psyche is not always, but often this oppositionality. So with every statement of certainty, there's another part of them that can't help but say, but then again, and sixes are in many ways a bundle of opposites. And this is something that Riso Hudson said in the Wisdom of the Enneagram. They're sweet, but they're also sour. And they're loners, but they're also group people. And they're trusting, and they're also cynical. And that, describing that combination, that bundle of opposites, that can be the exact thing that makes a six go, that's me. And that's why I've never found myself in any kind of typology before, is because no matter what the question is on the test, I can always answer yes, but also no. Yeah. Which speaks to that. It's a, it's a version of that cowardice that I mentioned, right? Of not being willing to make a firm stance on certain things, but also this bouncing around, right? I am this and that. I am that and this and so forth. I would agree. I find that uh, in my experience, uh, sixes and fours are the two types that, um, at least in the corporate world, have the, the biggest challenge identifying themselves. So, because fours just don't want to admit that they're a type, it, you know. Again, in in, in my corporate <laughs> environment, in the enneagram world in general, I think fours love the enneagram, right? So they're, you know, if uh, and when they get over it. that hump, which yes. I had to as well, of like I don't want to be put in a box. Yes, yes, I'm not one of nine. Right, right. It's it's funny. I, I like to you know kind of tell how. In almost every training I do in an organization, there's somebody who says, well, I can see why TJ's this type and Mary's that type and Joe is that type, but I'm different. You know, I'm more complicated than other people, et cetera. And I, my response is always, yeah, we've got a category for you too. You know, (laughs) you're special, just like everybody else. (laughs) All right, good. All right. So the first movie we're going to talk about is Meet the Parents. Uh, uh, Who's going to tell us about Meet the Parents? Is that you, TJ and Gracia? Yes. All right, go ahead. Meet the Parents is the 2000 comedy film directed by Jay Roach of Austin Powers fame or infamy. The story revolves around Greg Fokker, spelled with an O, a male nurse played by Ben Stiller, who plans to propose to his girlfriend Pam, but only after he meets her parents and secures her father's blessing. Upon arrival, he discovers that Pam's father, Jack, played by Robert De Niro, is an intimidating and overly protective former CIA operative. Jack immediately becomes suspicious of Greg and begins questioning his every move. As the weekend progresses, Greg's attempts to impress Jack are met with one unfortunate incident after another. Hilarity ensues, including a disastrous volleyball game, a lost cat named Jinx, and an incident involving a lie detector test. Greg's nerves continue to fray, causing a rift between him and Pam, and his interactions with Jack become increasingly tense and hostile. However, Greg's genuine love for Pam and his willingness to overcome the obstacles ultimately win Jack's grudging respect. Pam is the one Greg wants to marry. Just relax, honey. He's going to love you. But before he can pop the question, he'll have to meet... Hi, Daddy! ...the parents. What did you drive there, Ford? Oh, yeah. It's an interesting color. You pick it? Oh, no. Now the Hurst guy picked it. Why? Well, they say geniuses pick green, but you didn't pick it. Nice to this one, okay? I don't know what it is, but there's just something about him that's a little off. It's an antique polygraph machine. Why don't you try that on? That's okay. Oh, come on, we'll have some fun. Greg, my father was never in the rare flower business. Don't worry, you'll enjoy this. Oh. He 
was in the CIA for 34 years. Great. Yeah, I was scared of your dad back when I thought he was a florist. I'm a patient man. That's what 19 months in a Vietnamese prison camp will do to you. But I will be watching you. Meet the parents. You think that CIA man? They teach you that in the CIA? You have another question? Sure, I got one question for you. Do I think you're a psycho? Yes. That's my future son-in-law. Can you deal with that? I saw in the research that it was Jim Carrey's idea to give him the name Fokker uh, because Jim Carrey was one of the early candidates to play that role. Uh, thank goodness they didn't use him. I'm not a big Jim Carrey fan, and so I, I think Ben Stiller did an amazing job at it. Uh, but originally, Greg didn't have a name. And I had no idea that it was a remake of an earlier movie uh, made with a budget of about $100,000 and uh, then remade 10 years later or so. so right. I'd really like uh, to see that original movie. I, I would too. It would be interesting to go back and do a comparison of them. Yeah. So. I don't know if it's available anywhere, but. Yeah. All right. So, um, and it was called Meet the Parents is, is the original also. So, Which I got to say is a perfect title. Yeah. Say more. I, I do a bit in my solo show course about coming up with a good title. You know what isn't a good title? Wonder Boys. If you knew nothing about the movie Wonder Boys, if all you knew was the title, what would you think it was about? Would you even know the genre? Would you know the tone? I posit no to all of those questions, whereas Meet the Parents, there's no ambiguity whatsoever in subject, genre, and tone. Perfect, perfect title that sets up the premise of the movie, which I see as inherently six-ish. Because the notion of meeting a loved one's parents is inherently fraught with anxiety, much less not only am I going to meet them, I'm going to ask for the dad's blessing to marry the daughter. And we're going to be staying with them. You know, I'm not just meeting them for dinner. I'm in their house. And then the fact that the dad turns out to be the nightmare dad. Like, I think this movie was just perfectly set up to capture a lot of sixish things of what if I had to meet my partner's parents? What if the dad not only is intimidating, but turned out to be a former, not only CIA operative, but interrogator. What if yes, I kept, and spy hunter? <laughs> what if I kept doing and saying the wrong thing? What if every joke I said landed with a thud? What if every attempt I made to connect actively made things much, much worse? Yes. What if I lost my luggage and the airline accidentally sent me a suitcase filled with dildos uh, and uh, <laughs> and other sex toys? Right. So, and I can just imagine like all of these things could be in the mind of a six who is going to experience this thing. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if that happens? Right. In real life, it's impossible to imagine that the weekend would have played out as disastrously as this. Although it does resolve, of course. But it's easy for me to picture a six thinking of all of these things and vibrating with anxiety on the plane on the way to meet the parents. Yeah. So we're in agreement then that the Ben Stiller character was also a six, right? Uh, and the De Niro character. And the De Niro character would be pretty easy to mistake as an eight if you didn't really understand the Enneagram and understand the transmitting six, but it is a transmitting six and not a, an eight. And the reason for that is because it is all about striving to be secure. It is all about uh, reactivity to danger rather than dominance, power, and control as it is with an eight. Right? It would have been a very different movie if the character was an eight. And it's also reactivity to perceived danger. Yes. Greg has a lot going for him as a potential suitor for your daughter. Yeah. He's well-groomed. He's gainfully employed. He's polite. He's respectful. He's, you know, he ticks every single box. 
And of course, Jack is just like, something's up with this guy. I can't trust him. And that's something that I've also seen read and heard from sixes is the anxiety really gets going when there's nothing wrong. When everything is calm and peaceful, that's when the mind prevaricates of all the things that could go wrong. Whereas if the shit has hit the fan, there's no room for that. The six will go right into action and actually deal with it. Yeah. Uh, TJ and Gracia, what, what about this movie was six-ish for you? Yeah, well, I mean, it's just sort of all the things you guys have been talking about. The the distinction between the transmitting six and the eight. Uh, Robert De Niro's character has this, uh, what you call in the Enneagram guidebook, suspicious vigilance and probing the environment for danger. Actually, I think it's in Awareness to Action where you said that. But yeah, it's it's a, um, a reactivity, but it's driven by this this fear of what could go wrong and where are the threats. Actually, it was interesting contrasting w- watching this film and thinking about Father of the Bride, which we talked about in the Preserving episode, where you know the daughter brings home the new boyfriend and the six father does not like it. But the difference between the Preserving Six and the Transmitting Six is, it, you know, is obviously the difference in the reactions that these two men have. Um, the Transmitting Six, <laughs> their philosophy is more like the best defense is a good offense. Yes. And the preserving six is maybe more like the best offense is a good defense yeah, right, or something, right. something along those lines. And, the, and then the, the navigating six is like, just tell me where to play and I'll, you know. Right. Yeah. So, so uh, l- let me, let me talk a little bit about subtypes here, t- uh, TJ, and then I'm going to throw it back to you for, you know, any scenes that jumped out for you that really illustrated this. But um, in a lot of the Enneagram literature, there's this idea of phobic versus counterphobic sixes. And I think that's a little bit simplistic. And in fact, I was just reading in, I think it was Sandra Matry's book, that Naranjo identified a third version of the six, which he was referring to as the um, uh, the, the navigating or social six, as he would have called it. But uh, I forget exactly what the term was that he used. Here's the way I see it. All sixes, just like everybody else, can be fearful and react aggressively against fear, right? This is just part of our natural biology, right? What are some of the options that we have under threat, right? Fight or flight, okay? And some of us will, and there's also comply, right? Or, you know, whatever. But generally, most of us will sort of weigh the situation subconsciously or consciously and pick one of those choices. I better run. This bear is really big. I'm getting out of here right? Or this thing is, you know, I can take this and I'm slower than it is. So I'm going to fight, right? So um, this is what we do. And these things exist on a continuum for all of us. Sometimes we fight, sometimes we flee, depending. And in all the sixes I know, even the so-called phobic sixes, which would be the preserving subtype, they can be pretty darn aggressive at times, under the right circumstances. They can be counterphobic in that sense. Transmitting sixes, however, because of that transmitting instinctual bias, which is all about putting out into the world, not so much protecting ourselves from it like the preserving domain is, they will have more of a tendency to be aggressive, to go against, okay? Because to TJ's point, a good de- the best defense is a really good offense. So I'm going out at it. 
So this is how I see this. It's not phobic versus counterphobic. It's just that the transmitting six is a logically more aggressive character given their personality profile. Okay. And again, I think we see that in, uh, certainly in Jack Burns, the Robert De Niro character, whereas I see the uh, Ben Stiller character as more of a navigating six in my experience or in my observation of this movie. So a little bit of both, okay? Bit phobic, bit assertive, depending on the circumstances. So thoughts on that, and then I'm going to ask TJ about uh, um, particular scenes or anything else about the movie. Something that I noticed in the movie is that Jack's concerns seem to be very much in the preserving domain. You know, like he's, he doesn't dress in a flashy way. He's, he's very domestic. You know, he's created his own business making surveillance cameras for the home. He loves his cat. He's very concerned about who's going to marry his daughter or his other daughter's wedding, that kind of thing. So where do you see the transmitting in him other than his assertive aggression? So the reason I see him as a transmitting six is about, um, it's that need to shape everything around me. Okay. It's that need to take my point of view and put it out into the world. My need to teach people. Okay, to have how you should be, right? There were always these lessons he had for them. What did I tell you about packing on the, the for the airplane? That sort of thing. Okay, so in my view, he was trying to shape the world around him a bit more than I would see in a preserving six usually. Now, again, um, it's a situation where probably. There's a difference between the acting and the content that might be causing this, right? So maybe I'm seeing the acting of the transmitting six, but if you read the script, it's more the preserving stuff. Now that said, for transmitters, the preserving domain is the secondary domain. It's the area of inner conflict. It's the area where they tend to feel insecure, so there's a lot of talk about tr uh, preserving issues in most transmitters and particularly transmitting sixes. Okay. So that said, I think you're making a good point, TJ, and an argument could be made either way. And I don't know if maybe this is stretching the, uh, the premise of the film too far, but potentially a former CIA operative may have learned in his training over the years not to be flashy. You know, it's better to fly under the radar, be a little quieter. Uh, not stand out. So that could be something yeah. as well. But that, that might be pushing it a little too far. Yeah. And so the transmitting can, you know, um, take different forms. Like you, TJ Daw, you're a transmitter, but you're not a flashy guy in <laughs> your, the way you dress, right? Your transmitting takes other forms. Okay. It's the performing, for example. It's the expression of your ideas and so forth. Okay. So... The, the dress, the attire, is just one data point whenever we're looking at these sort of things. Now, when we talk about Aaron Brockovich, okay, now we're yeah, the stereotype story. transmitting, you know, sort of thing, okay? They're but, called boobs, Ed. <laughs> yeah, which is, yeah. So, but we'll save that conversation until we get to that movie. So, all right. Okay, um, uh, TJ and Gracia, what else about this movie was six-ish for you? One of the opening scenes when they first get to the house, 
Jack is telling them about his hidden camera business that, that TJ referenced. And when he's setting up the premise of why he's created this business, he's uh, he presents a scenario. You want to go out for dinner. You want to leave the kids at home with a babysitter. You've checked the references. Everything checks out. But how can you really know if your kids or if your loved ones are safe with this person? And he says, can you ever really trust another human <laughs> being, Greg? And Greg, you know, thanks for us. He says, yeah, sure. I, I think you can. And he says, no, the answer is you cannot. <laughs> and that's that suspicious vigilance yeah. of the, of this. That's really the affect of that sixes is you cannot trust another human being ever. Right. Right. And then, and then I think also the scene, uh, the interrogation scene after uh, Greg is sort of shunned from the family Jack actually gets what he wants. He drives Greg away, or Gaylord. We turn out, uh, you know, we find out is is Greg's real name. So he's going to fly back home. He has a freakout moment on the plane. He says bomb, which you can't say on a plane. Although it was interesting thinking they made this movie before 9-11. Right. So I don't know that you could have right. used that joke afterwards. It's a little bit right. dated. So um, he ends up in an interrogation room, and Jack eventually comes in and is interrogating him. And... Before this scene happens, Jack sort of gets, you know, Pam says, you know, I love you, daddy, but sometimes you can be a real jerk because she's upset that he's driven her her boyfriend away. And her wife says, you know, uh, no one's ever been good enough for your daughter. Maybe you should think about what's best for Pam this time. So he goes to interrogate Greg. And there's sort of this sequence where it's almost like a little bit of a it's it's a play on the wedding vows and a proposal. So he says, if you married my daughter, would you support her in the way that she deserves to be supported? Yes. Would you be honest and faithful to her? Yes. Would you devote yourself to her? Of course I would. Gaylord Fokker, will you be my son-in-law? And then he pulls out the <laughs> ring that Greg has been searching for the whole film. So it was a moment of, I don't know how much growth necessarily Jack has felt in these last few minutes since his wife and his daughter yelled at him. But I think... It's probably as much growth as we can expect a person like this to, you know, he's he's reluctantly agreed. He's still suspicious of Greg. He's going to keep an eye on him, but he's let him back into the circle of trust. And I think sometimes it's important to keep in mind that we talked about this last week, that your greatest strengths are also your greatest weaknesses. And that's true for every type. And so it doesn't mean for Jack to become a healthy self-actualized person. And this is a fictional character and it's very hyperbolic and played up for comedic effects. So I don't want to push this too far, but basically it doesn't mean he doesn't have to be vigilant anymore. He doesn't have to be concerned about the safety of his family and wanting to protect his daughter and all that, but he's, he's grown. He said, okay, I'll put these concerns aside and I'm going to let you back in. So there's some, there's some growth towards the end. Yeah. Great. I love that scene particularly because it just seemed like such a good resolution between two sixes. Because for the first time in the movie, both of them, you see their affect change, both of them. They're calm and steady. And Greg's been telling a lot of little white lies to try and cover up the mistakes that he's been making. But in that conversation for the first time in the movie, no deception. Let's just, let's be straightforward and honest. And Jack can see that. And then Greg gets assertive in his own way and starts asking Jack questions and holds his wrists to feel his heartbeat. Cause it's like, I have the right to make demands too. You know, if I'm going to be entering into this family and he's totally honest about how I wanted to marry your daughter until I met you. And I don't know if I could survive in this family, but there there's suddenly this pipeline of honesty and trust that there wasn't before. And you can see that there's an understanding growing between them. And that's the foundation of a solid relationship. And I just thought that was beautiful. Yeah. Agreed. Also, 
the single funniest line ever. I have nipples, Greg. Could you milk me? I, <laughs> I, I've seen this movie so many times, and when I was watching it last night, again, I couldn't breathe. I was laughing so hard in that scene where Greg is talking about not growing up on a farm and milking a little runt cat named uh, Geppetto. So, <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, when it comes to what is six-ish about this movie, you pretty much just say everything, right? I mean, there's really very little uh, that's not six-ish. Even the character, the Owen Wilson character, who is not a six, I'm not. that's not where I'm going, very clearly a three from my view, at least, um, was being seen through the eyes of sixes right the father was looking at well, boy look how successful this guy is you know he's amazing and this is what somebody should be this is what you should aspire to whereas greg was seeing him as a threat and the person not to be in the world i think uh, somebody that he actually had disdain for which was very much a navigator view on some transmitters i think that the owen wilson character was probably a transmitting three in that so very much a navigating perspective from greg so thoughts on the uh, owen wilson character well I've, I've also known a lot of sixes to get their backs up about threes in general whether it's somebody they know or somebody in the media there can be this kind of reactivity of like who do they think they are just walking around asserting themselves with not one ounce of self-consciousness or self-doubt like who does that there's got to be something wrong with that. Also, shout out, I I was marveling re-watching the movie at how perfect, I think, Terry Polo was. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her last name, but as his fiance to be I just thought she struck me as the perfect light comedy fiance, you know, that's the kind of girl you want to marry, you know, is is my reaction to that. So I, I thought she was really fantastic in a fairly simple part. She seemed pretty nine-ish to me. And the six-nine combo is one that I have seen a lot in people that I know. And yeah. again, no way of knowing how universal that is. Uh, you know, I just have my limited view of people I've interacted with or talked about these things. But it's a, it's a couple conversation or combination I've seen a lot. And I wonder if it's the calm steadiness of the nine really gives something needed to the anxiety-prone six. Yeah. Um, I would agree. I've seen that relationship in ways that seems to be disproportionate to what relationship you know, combinations could be. Uh, I also see, I, I, and I think there is something to that person providing something that I need, right? That's often why we choose someone. I see lots of eight-two relationships as well uh, very often uh, the eight usually it's the eight male and the two female um, I also have seen a surprising number of five two relationships which is uh, is quite challenging for for both of them but uh, as are all relationships but anyway yeah I would agree TJ common relationship Okay, so that uh, brings us to uh, the conclusion of our discussion to meet the parents. Uh, again, funny, funny, funny movie. If for some reason you've been holding out against anything related to uh, uh, the director um, for any psychotic uh, reason, uh, you know, it, it's time you can go ahead and watch this movie. So, uh, re really good movie. 
you want to find out more about my work with the Enneagram and organizations of all kinds or our certification programs, visit me at mariosecura.com or follow me on social media. Hi, I'm TJ Daw, and I do one-on-one consulting on creative projects of all kinds, as well as Enneagram coaching. I teach an online course on how to create your own one-person show, and I speak at events and perform shows of my own. For more information, go to my website, www.tjdawe.ca. This is TJ Ingracia. To check out my YouTube series, Typecast, which explores the Enneagram through film and television, go to youtube.com typecast. And... If you're interested in my professional video production services, check out tjangracia.com. All right, our next movie is Aaron Brockovich. Made the same year as uh, Meet the Parents, both made in 2000, as was Wonder Boys. What a good year for movies that was. So, uh, TJ Dahl, you're going to tell us about Aaron Brockovich. So yes, Aaron Brockovich was directed by Steven Soderbergh, written by Susanna Grant, and it's based on the true story of... Aaron Brockovich, played by Julia Roberts, who was a single mother of three living in L.A., given to profanity and cleavage-bearing clothes, who forces her way into a job at a small law firm run by a man named Ed Masry, played by Albert Finney. And while looking into a file on a case of a couple fending off Pacific Gas and Electric, who was trying to buy their home, she discovers that the multi-billion dollar company had poisoned the groundwater in the small community of Hinckley in the Mojave Desert, two hours outside of LA. So even though she's a lawyer and has no experience working in the law in any capacity, she helps to gather current and former residents of the town into a class action suit to get compensation for the many dire health problems that they have suffered as a result of the poisoned groundwater. They end up winning and getting a huge settlement, and the movie ends with her knocking on a door as she's already hard at work on another class action suit. You want my number. I do. How about this for number six? That's how old my daughter is. Eight is the age of my son. Two is how many times I've been divorced. Sixteen is the number of dollars I have in my bank account. I'm so glad we got that out of the way, because I didn't find you attractive either. Then we're even. (laughs) I'm smart, I'm hardworking, and I'll do anything, and I'm not leaving here without a job. Don't make me beg. In a law firm, you may want to rethink your wardrobe a little. Well, as long as I have one ass instead of two, I'll wear what I like, if that's all right with you. You might want to rethink those ties. Why are there medical records and blood samples in real estate files? Would you mind if I investigate this a little further? What makes you think you can just walk in there and find what we need? They're called boobs, Ed. You're emotional, you're erratic, you make this personal, and it isn't. That is my work, my sweat, my time away from my kids. If that's not personal, I don't know what is. We're gonna get them here, aren't we? They're all signed, every single one. How did you do this? Seeing as how I have no brains or legal expertise, I just went up there and performed 634 sexual favors. I'm really quite tired. So, like I said at the beginning of our podcast, I saw this when it was in the theater, and I remember thinking, yeah, it was okay, you know, not wild about it, not, you know, it didn't, it's not something I got all excited about, and in fact, I hadn't seen it again, uh, seen it until we decided to do it for this podcast, and I really think this is a good movie. I was really, really impressed. I am a big Steven Soderberger, Soderberg fan. Um, I think he's one of our most gifted directors i think he's had some misses like uh, every creative person has but i was fascinated by the four-year run 
during which uh, Aaron Brockovich was at the heart. You had 1998's Out of Sight with George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez. In 1999, you had The Limey with Terrence Stamp and Peter Fonda. Have you guys seen The Limey? Love The Limey. What a movie, man. I love, love, love that movie. It's just... And, you know, one of these days we'll do an eight episode focused on that. That is a transmitting eight, my friend, the uh, Terrence Stamp character. TJ and Grassi, it looks like you haven't seen The Limey, huh? I have not. I don't think I've ever even heard of it. It wasn't big. No. It, it just kind of came and went. But, ooh, is that the same with Out of Sight? Yeah. And, uh, and after The Limey was Aaron Brockovich. In the same year, Traffic. The uh, remake of the uh, uh, British uh, uh, miniseries about the drug trade. Have you guys seen Traffic? Are you fans of that movie? Yeah, back in the day. So in the same rep cinemas that I saw Aaron Brockovich. Mm, good. And, uh, and then that was followed by Ocean's Eleven, which is a great, fun movie. And I think in this period, with the exception of Limey, Limey is not the most accessible movie, but he had a run of really adult grown-up, mature, fun, interesting, engaging movies that is hard to top. I mean, that's a heck of a run of movies right there. So big Steven Soderbergh fan, and especially of these movies. All right, good. So T.J. Dahl, what about this movie was sixes to you? Well, may as well get into this before we do anything else. Like, this is a character <laughs> who could easily be mistaken for an eight because Aaron Brockovich is incredibly aggressive, and that's her signature, you know, that's the way anybody would describe her. That word would come more than anything else. So, you know, we had a bit of a conversation offline about this, but I think it's probably really valuable to like get into what this character would look like if it was cast as an eight and directed to play the role as an eight. Yeah. And primarily, I think it comes down to her affect is she's very aggressive, but she's always aggressive in response to some perceived threat, not always an yeah. actual threat. But yeah. it's, it's a very reactive anger. And eights, I find, are much more powerful even when they're resting. And a male actor that comes to mind when I think of this is Michael Madsen. How he doesn't have to yell, he doesn't have to flex, he doesn't have to fight somebody or threaten somebody. Just in his calm stability, he exudes power. And I was trying to think of like, who could conceivably have played a female role in that same way? And I can't think of a perfect equivalent, but Sigourney Weaver came to mind. Or, you know, if it had been made in the right year, Betty Davis, of just that calm steadiness, as opposed to the fact that Aaron Brockovich is much more prone to flying off the handle. So when she's on the stand, you know, at the beginning of the movie, she gets in a car accident and she's brought to court and the lawyer for the defense needs about two sentences to get her to go from charming and friendly to suddenly yelling and swearing on the stand and blowing out her own case. And that's a pattern that we see again and again in her interactions throughout the movie. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I think you're right. This is an important conversation because it would be very easy to see her as an eight and, um, and it wouldn't be a, you know, tremendously off the mark, uh, argument, but it was in those, I agree with you, the reactivity and the over the top reactivity, the scene that really struck out to me upon rewatching was when she jumped all over that female lawyer at, at their first meeting, 
right? And it was like, all I kept thinking is, she's actually being pretty respectful to you. And what she's asking for to have these 600 people's phone numbers written down instead of being in your head is not unreasonable, right? I mean, in fact, that's kind of 101 responsible, you know, governance of an organization. We need to have the data, you know, I mean, how can we work with this? And just this over-the-top insulting sort of thing, it was really kind of unlikable, right, in in my view, very over the, you know, very reactive, like you said. Um, there was also these acts of assertion, of which there were many, because she was a very aggressive character, right? Um, but they would often be bookended by these flashes of insecurity, doubt, and wavering. There was the scene, for example, when she goes in demanding a job and, you know, she's very confrontational and then she whispers, don't make me beg, right? Now, an ape might have done that, but with a very different affect. And you're right. I mean, it's, you know, going into those situations because I was looking for an analog as well, TJ, for a, you know, a transmitting ape actress, actor, female actor uh, to be in that role. And the closest I could come up with was Sigourney Weaver. And again, just a very different affect. And that sort of everything from the, um, the, the Julia Roberts acting seemed to come from her face. Right, the the rage, the, the the everything was just up high, whereas with a Sigourney Weaver, it's coming from the belly, right? In in, in that way, so um, so I, I would agree with you. It was the affect that was the giveaway for me. Uh, so uh, TJ and Gracia, thoughts? I think those are all great arguments to point out. Yeah, I think I agree with all of that. Uh, she what? Yeah, she's a very reactive character, and I think. You know, if thinking about her as as an eight, I really don't think it would be fair to say that she's striving to feel powerful. That doesn't really feel like the main thing that's driving her. Right. I don't know, you know, in terms of the affect, I don't know that just out of the blue, I would say, is she striving to feel secure? I mean, as we had talked offline, she's a single mom with two young kids and a nine-month-old baby who apparently just went through a horrible, you know, if the if the father of a nine month old baby is not around, something horrible must have happened. Right. She's unemployed, so that's going to create a lot of stress and anxiety in anyone. So, you know, any any single mother in that situation is going to be striving to feel secure. Yes. But yeah, I, I I think I agree about the reactivity, and um, yeah, I think that reactivity is probably the key. Yeah. There were a couple of other things too. Um, it uh, you know, in addition to the affect that were giveaways for six to me rather than eight there was the scene where she was finally uh, warming up to the aaron eckhart character who by the way in one of his early scenes in the movie sounded just just like seth rogan to me and i couldn't get seth rogan out of my head for the rest of the movie so it was a really weird watching experience so um <laughs> but uh <laughs> But uh, so, and again, I, I would say that that character was probably a transmitting nine. And um, again, we've got another six, nine sort of relationship. Anyway, when, something that she says to him when she starts warming up to him is, you're not going to be something else that I have to survive, are you? Because I don't think I'm up to it. And the core 
fear, the, the, the core stunting of the six is around confidence. I don't know what I have to take. I don't know if I have what it takes to survive. Okay. And that was just a great expression of it. The other thing is at point three, there's this issue of value, right? And she would, there were a number of times when she would say things about her value, right? At the end, it was all about number one, she got up, upset with him when he gave her the check because she assumed that he was violating her trust, right? That there was a trust issue behind them, behind it. And also she was talking about the importance of her value to doing this, right? And this is something I see in sixes is this, wait a minute, I'm really important here. I'm really important here. Did you see what I did? Did you see what I did? When they access that three place. There was also a scene when um, uh, the uh, George is leaving her and she said, for the first time in my life, I walk into a room and people want to know what I have to say. That's not something you hear from eights, right? <laughs> I mean, you, you know, with eights, they're used to people, you know, noticing when they walk into the room and waiting to hear what they have to say, right? So again, just a, a very different uh, character. And an eight's going to tell you what they have to say, whether you want to hear it or not. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's exactly right. And so, uh, so talk a little bit about more about the movie, then I'll talk a little bit more about the difference between six and eight. So uh, additional thoughts on the movie. Well, there's another scene where she gets a threatening phone call from someone anonymous who's trying to scare her off from investigating this case. And she just receives it. And then, you know, within the same scene, George tries to talk her into quitting and getting another job. And she throws it back in his face. And it occurred to me that a six would be more prone to fear if there was no threat. What happens at a certain point in this movie, once this case becomes clear of what exactly is going on, she's very, and they reference this blatantly, she's in a David and Goliath situation. And when there's a clear and present danger, especially when it's clear and present dangers in the form of a great, big, powerful authority is stomping on the little person, that's when a six can go right into action and the doubt evaporates. And they're doing exactly the right thing. And they have this calm steadiness because there's an oppositional force. And if there's no oppositional force, like I was saying earlier, that's when the mind goes into forecasting disaster. She's in that situation somewhat even before that, given that she's a single mom with three kids and she's broke and she's behind on her bills. She seemingly is unemployable. And then she gets in this car accident, like the deck is really stacked against her. So she's got a lot of things that she's battling that are real. These are not phantoms in her mind. So she's got something to push against. And then when she goes up against Pacific Gas and Electric, she's got something huge to push against. And she is definitely right. And that's part of why the story is so wonderful and so inspiring is it, it really just shows the value of sixes because this is a case that she found. This seemingly was a simple pro bono real estate deal. And she smelled a rat and looked into it. And then another real six thing is that she relates to all the people in Hinckley as an equal. She can really talk to them on their level. And we see that when it's contrasted with Teresa, who's the real lawyer going in and trying to talk to them. And she's dressed like a lawyer and she's speaking to them like a lawyer. And it's really off-putting. Whereas she relates to them as an equal. And same with her like gathering water samples and like reaching down into the ditch and things like that. She fights on the front lines as opposed to commanding people, you know, getting, getting a team working under her and telling them what to do. She really just does seem like one of the people fighting as an equal against this huge oppressive force. But I did like at the very end when her boss gives her the check, surprises her with a $2 million bonus, and she thought it was going to be less. 
And she just kind of stands there with her mouth open, you know, unable to say anything for the first time in the movie. And he says, kind of throwing her line from earlier in the film back in her face, he says, do they teach beauty queens how to apologize? Because you suck at it. And then he kind of dances out of the office. That was a good moment. <laughs> yeah. A great Albert Finney role. I, I thought he was really, really good in this movie. Earlier, TJ, you mentioned about how she found this big case on her own because she was just hired to file documents and she saw something in one of the documents that caught her attention. And it, it was because she was filing real estate documents and uh, realized that there were some medical documents in with the file. And she started saying, well, what's going on here? And this is something for sixes that I call the dog with the bone syndrome. When something doesn't feel right, I just can't let it go, right? I just know there's something wrong here because something wrong indicates a potential threat, a potential problem. So they, they hold on to it. And this is a great, great example of a dog with a bone sort of experience or a, a dog with a bone um, character. Okay, Different again from the eight, right? Eights will stick with things, but eights usually they're go after itness is more in service of a clearly defined, identified, articulated goal or threat. Okay. It's not necessarily just something's wrong here and I need to figure out what it is. An eight in that sort of case most likely would just say, yeah, well, whatever, and just, you know, push it to the side and move on in most cases. Okay. So uh, a little, a little bit different there because again, that was something that I can see people confusing the six and the eight with of, well, you know, she went at it and went at it and didn't give up and so forth. Something that I've experienced as well, talking with a lot of sixes, particularly in workshops where someone's kind of wrestling with the fact that they very well probably are a six, is it's not unusual for a six to have a hard time discerning what's good about being a six. I've known a lot of sixes to, when they eventually settle into it, their energy is very much like, oh no, I don't want to be the fearful, anxious type. Why can't I be the fun type? Why can't I be the artsy type? Why can't I be the loving, kind type? Why I have to be the the scared type? Oh, great. And it's it's things like you just described that really show just how wonderful a six can be and how valuable a six can be. And the the final moment of the entire movie shows her stepping up to a door. They've, they've got a new class action case. You know, part of what made the first case work was that her, her individual touch, she went up to all of these doors, knocked on doors related to people as an equal, got them to sign on to the class action suit. Now she's doing it again with an even bigger case. And she's smiling. It's a subtle smile, but it's there that to me communicated that she's exactly where she's supposed to be. And it brought to mind that I ended up looking it up, seen from the end of The Grapes of Wrath, where Tom Jode is leaving his family. And saying and saying why he's leaving and what he's going to do, he says, "A fella ain't got a soul of his own, but only a piece of a big one." I'll be everywhere. Where <laughs> getting emotional just reading this, where there's a fight so hungry people can eat, I'll be there. Wherever there's a cop beating up a guy, I'll be there. I'll be in the way guys yell when they're mad, and I'll be in the way kids laugh when they're hungry and they know supper's ready. And when our folks eat the stuff they raise and live in the houses they build, why? I'll be there. And I think that's, to me, six at their finest, yeah. is I'm part of something bigger and I'm working for all of us so that everyone has a chance, so that everyone has an opportunity and this only works 
if we all work together. It's not about me. It's about all of us. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I think that sixes are one of the types. Well, again, it's they're they're misrepresented in very specific ways. The stereotype of the six in the Enneagram literature is this fearful Woody Allen-ish, you know, um, phobic kind of person who's a scaredy cat and running away from every threat. The reality is, is that most sixes are more like you just described there, TJ, right? People who are committed to something, people who want to make something happen, people who are committed to the well-being and safety and security of others and who bring something to that that others don't have. When I was um, uh, president of the IEA um, 10, 12 years ago, our treasurer was a six and she was also an attorney by training. And wonderful, wonderful woman, and uh, who I just adored, and could drive people crazy with some of her sixishness at times. You know, of you know, pointing out you know things that could go wrong, for example. But I relied on her so much to say, "Hey, I'm thinking of doing this. Tell me what's going to go wrong, right?" And then I could mitigate for it. Right. So things that I would have never seen, I would have never been able to predict. She could and, and uh, you know, did it in a way that because she cared. Right? So, uh, yeah, wonderful, wonderful qualities there. And sixes are not all wimps, right? They're not Woody Allen-ish wimps. We've talked about this before. Um, you know, the uh, the Jack Burns character, kind of scary guy right? Not really a wimp. We've talked about Mel Gibson and most of his movies, you know, William Wallace, not particularly a wimp. Okay. Uh, Martin Riggs, not particularly a wimp you know, and so forth. So uh, a lot of very strong, assertive six characters and certainly Aaron Brockovich, not a wimp. All right. So um, final thoughts on either of these movies or type sixes in movies in general. Uh, one thing I want to say is that I've found as I was considering this, you know, building off our initial conversation that was happening on WhatsApp, you know, what are the differences between a transmitting six and an eight? The very conversation is actually really six-ish in terms of how do we know that something's true? How do we know that a system or a structure or an idea is sound? Question it and question it relentlessly. Don't just take it for an authority's word. Look for cracks, poke at it. Does it hold up? make them show evidence, examine the evidence, evaluate it. Then you can build something you can trust. And there's huge value in that, not just in this conversation, but in all realms of life. Yeah. I also want to say, uh, going on that note of the, the distinction between sixes and eights, because I think this is important. People talk about how eights have this fear of being vulnerable, right? That's their, you know, basic fear or whatever. Well, I don't know anybody that's not afraid of being vulnerable, right? I mean, you know, who says, oh, yeah, I, you know, I want to be vulnerable, you know, you know, come hurt me kind of thing, right? Um, my view is that these Enneagram types are not a reaction to something. They're a wiring toward something, toward maintaining an affective regulatory state, okay? Meaning. TJ is not a TJ Dahl is not a four because you have this fear of something. You are just wired to strive to be unique, strive to feel unique, right? So it's a positive moving towards something. Now, 
I understand this is a chicken and the egg question. Okay, And how do we really know? And we don't. But every eight I talk to, and I was just on a panel of eights the other night. I typically don't do that kind of thing, but I was asked by a friend to sit in on a panel of type eights. And every eight up there, there were five of us, said, you know what? I'm just not really afraid of being vulnerable, right? Um, you know, I'll tell you whatever you want to know about me. You know, I'm not afraid of you knowing things about me. And I don't get up in the morning and be motivated by that. What I want is to be powerful and capable and competent, okay, to have an impact on things. And if I am not those things, that's what I'm afraid of, okay? And so it's different, okay? The motivation is different. Now, with sixes, there is this motivation to not be in danger, right? I want to be secure. Now, it's the same thing, right? I want to be secure, okay? Which means... I'm trying to move away from threats. I'm trying to identify and go after threats. But it is much more for the six around awareness of insecurity than it is for the eight. And therefore, when you see the affect of an eight, you don't see that sort of twitchiness that you see in the Aaron Brockovich character, right? Eights, you know, to your point earlier, TJ, with Michael Madsen, Michael Madsen's not a twitchy guy. Okay? He's just there. Okay? So this is one of the key distinctions. It's not so much that, you know, eights are afraid of being vulnerable and sixes are, you know, afraid of, you know, uh, um, things. There's this movement towards something. But with the six, you'll see more of a twitchiness, more of an underlying anxiety that leaks out that you don't see in the eight. I don't know if that was coherent, but the key point is around the uh, uh, the anxiety leaking out. It's just, it's just not an eight thing. Okay, TJ, sixes in movies. Any any further comments on uh, sixes in movies? Yeah, if somebody is a six or would like to see more six or would like to experience the world like a six, I would recommend watching thrillers and suspense movies. It can really bring you into that state of anxiety. Something's wrong. Something is closing in. Something threatening is coming for me now. Film noir as well. Film noir is about the world is a threatening place and the main character is stuck in a maze with no exit as they circle the drain and bring about their own demise. Uh, some movies and movie stars with a lot of six going on is The Hunger Games. I find Katniss Everdeen to be a great six. We mentioned Julia Roberts in other roles. I agree. I think Pretty Woman is a great playful six. She plays a lot of playful sixes in a lot of other roles. Same with Meg Ryan. So Meg Ryan in Sleepless in Seattle, Meg Ryan in When Harry Met Sally. And then there's the more kind of aggressive six, uh, Eminem in Eight Mile or Holly Hunter in Broadcast News. And the more fearful six, Pretty much anything Albert Brooks has ever played. You know, Albert Brooks was in season one with Defending Your Life. I would also name Finding Nemo. His character, Marlon, in that is a great, fearful six who's rising up to something he's terrified of and being brilliant. And uh, another great movie, Postcards from the Edge. Meryl Streep plays a character that's very blatantly based on Carrie Fisher, whose novels and memoirs are absolutely wonderful and seized with sixishness, and that's one of my favorite movies ever. Oh, and then one more movie that 
I just love uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think the Leonardo DiCaprio character is very much a six in that, in that he's st- hesitating and reactive and self-punishing in certain scenes. And then when he's got his big chance, when he's uh, doing a guest spot on a TV show, just absolutely nails it. And same with at the end when there's a big confrontation with the Manson gang. Yeah, that's good. I'll throw in too, we, we, I, I mentioned already Mel Gibson, who, you know, it breaks my heart to see Mel canceled, um, and deservedly so, uh, you know, to be kind of, uh, um, you know, looked down upon. But I got to tell you, I still love Mel Gibson movies. Um, and uh, Steven Seagal, I always used as an example of a of a six um, to counteract the uh, the Woody Allen sort of stereotype. So Steven Seagal in real life seems very, very much like a transmitting six and most of his movie characters are the same. All right, guys, uh, thank you. So this was a, a good episode. And, uh, um, you know, so we're wrapping up our conversation about the three, six, and the nine. And again, just reiterate that, like we talked about with the three and with the nine, the three, nine, and six all have the same sort of issues, just sort of twisted up in a different priority. So a lot of similarities, a lot of overlap, a lot of wrestling with the same issues in different ways. Uh, always fun to talk about those three types together. So with that, we'll wrap up this episode and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe and join us on social media.